You're listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Dominic Meisters. Welcome to the conversation. In today's episode, we are with uh, Miss Elizabeth Kamundia, who is a member of the Kenyan National Commission on Human Rights and is also a doctoral candidate at the Center for Human Rights. And we will be discussing access to justice issues for persons with disabilities. So thank you very much, Elizabeth, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, So when we're talking about access to justice, could you maybe explain a little bit more how access to justice is particular for persons with disabilities or what are their specific challenges which are different? Mm, mm. Okay, so, I mean, to begin with, I'd like to make it clear that I'll mostly be speaking about access to justice in terms of the formal justice systems rather than the more informal justice systems that we have on the continent. So I think it's important to state that up front. Um, and, And so, I mean, access to justice is a really important element of the rule of law. And I mean, it's about the processes and procedures um, that people who have encountered challenges with the law require in order to access a remedy. And so if you think about people with disabilities, and it's important to consider the full spectrum. So people with physical disabilities, people with psychosocial disabilities, people with intellectual uh, disabilities, sensory disabilities, people with albinism. So across the board, going to try and address the different barriers that arise for each of the groups. Given the fact that there's quite a cross-demographic, could you actually give us examples of the kind of things that are creating issues Mm -hmm. for accessing formal justice mechanisms? Okay, so, I mean, at the very basic level, for people with physical disabilities, it's about the location of the places where people are seeking justice. So if you think about the criminal justice system right from the police station, are there steps and the person uses a wheelchair, like really basic things at that level, right? Um, And then if you go all the way to the courtroom, are there steps as well? Is the court located on on the third floor and the lift doesn't work? Just basic, basic issues like that. So that's the first level. And then if you think about people with, um, psychosocial disabilities then, um, they also experience different kinds of barriers in the justice system, right? So it may be that someone is experiencing a lot of anxiety and when they encounter the police, are not able to answer questions in ways that will be considered typical. Maybe they are quiet and they therefore assumed to be hiding something. Maybe they respond to you know, more persistent questioning by pulling back and and just not responding in the ways that are expected. And there are certain inferences that are drawn from that that then end up hindering their equal and effective access to justice. Just picking up on this, so you're even talking like at the very first kind of point of contact that you've got in trying to gain justice as if you've got a police station mm-hmm. and how do you even access that? And then once you do... 
So what are the kind of measures we can do? How are this being addressed? Is it very well received? Is it very well understood within these um, communities? And even within like the police community, how well are the things understood from that level? Mm. So I think there are some impairments that are easier to understand, say, for the police than others. So I'll give an example of, say, someone is deaf, and I'm not in any way implying that people who are deaf always access justice uh, perfectly and smoothly. But if it's a, a, a straightforward question of an interpreter, it's obviously about getting a qualified interpreter who's able to really give the support in that situation. But it's easier to understand in a way than it is some of the challenges that people with intellectual disabilities face or some of the challenges, um, particularly if the person also has maybe significant communicational difficulties. Um, because if you think about the way the adversarial system of law is set up, it's really verbal. It's really about being able to give a coherent verbal account of events. So if you have a disability that impacts on the way you understand time, for example, and you're asked what date was it, what time, what was the, what was the accused person wearing? Those are questions that are seemingly easy questions that any witness should be able to remember, but that will present huge difficulties for people with intellectual disabilities. And then in turn, that leads to their being deemed as incompetent witnesses, while in fact it is the justice system that is discriminating against them by not giving them the supports that they require in order to communicate on an equal basis with others. So is it really that, the, as you were saying, the justice system doesn't cope? But before we even get there, how are, how are we going to get the police to understand these different matters? Because mm -hmm. as you are saying, if someone who's deaf, you can get an interpreter. But if is the onus always, or should the onus always be on the person with the disability to be like, I have a problem? Because if you're suffering from anxiety, you're not likely so... What are the kind of issues that we're yeah. dealing with there? Yeah, so we are dealing with um, a number of issues. We are dealing with a genuine lack of awareness about these kinds of disabilities existing in society. So there's, a, there's at one level just a genuine lack of awareness about, you know, psychosocial disabilities, intellectual disabilities, uh, disabilities that are basically invisible, right? And then at another level, we are also dealing with prejudices and um, negative societal attitudes about people with disabilities. So there are some ideas that people with certain disabilities are hypersexual, for example, which then lead to basically disruptions, just misunderstandings in the way um, the person is treated when they go to report a case. So yes, you're right, it's a number of issues that you know we are dealing with at, at that level of um, the first contact with the criminal justice system. And is it, for example, within the continent, how available are support services to help access? Because I, I would imagine it's also preventing a whole group of society from even getting any justice for their issues or even maybe they don't even realize that these things should be provided. So what on a continental level are we finding like our country's very bad? Is it that the communities are not doing enough or 
is it actually something that we're like, no, we are slowly starting to see progress. And for example, your work at the Kenyan Commission, is this something that's starting to be voiced and starting to be given a presence in the debate? Mm. To start with, I think there are challenges nearly at every, if you think about the justice system as a chain, there are challenges at every, every link of that chain and there are interventions that are needed at every part of that chain, right? So if you think about it even from the community level, um, we insist very much in the disability movement and it is right that people with disabilities should live in the community with choices equal to others. At the same time, how safe are communities for all people, of course, but for people with disabilities um, in particular, right? So there's a question about communities and the, the extent to which they are inclusive, even at that level. Okay, so, so there's that. And then a number of things that are beginning, I'm hopeful, basically, that this issue of access to justice is becoming important enough to raise the um, interests, basically, of um, different organizations um, and different institutions, including academic institutions, national human rights institutions, organizations of people with disabilities, um, you know, as well as other, um, other actors. In relation to academic institutions, at the University of Pretoria is a center for augmentative and alternative communication methods. And this center has supported many people with communicational difficulties give evidence um, in, in court proceedings. And the center holds that um, in up to 90% of cases of people with communicational difficulties, they up to that percent can be supported to give can be supported to give evidence uh, in court, even if these are people who would ordinarily be dismissed as being incompetent to testify, basically because of the different the different ways in which they communicate, right? So, so that's um, one element. The other element that I've seen, particularly in um, in the Kenyan context, but also broadly, Inclusion Africa is an organization that brings together different organizations of families and people of people with intellectual disabilities as well as people with intellectual disabilities themselves and they've been doing quite a bit of work on the question of access to justice and so in the Kenyan context as well there's an organization called the Kenyan Association for the Intellectually Handicapped and they are running a project together with an organization called Users and Survivors of Psychiatry Kenya in which they are training in collaboration with the National Human Rights Institution, training magistrates on issues of access to justice for people with intellectual and psychosocial disabilities. So really um, bringing it down so that it's not just about making uh, you know, magistrates aware about laws and policies that protect people with disabilities in terms of access to justice, but also having people on the ground who work on these issues saying, these are the challenges that we are facing even before we reach your courtroom. These are the hoops we have to jump as people with intellectual disabilities and psychosocial disabilities before the case can even get to, to, to you, to the place where you're you know, deciding the case on its merits. Okay, so there's quite a bit being done from that aspect. Mm. Mm. Now, let's say that someone who 
has a certain disability has managed to get through the first stage, mm-hmm. to put it this mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And now they've made it to the courts. Is it just the court process mm-hmm. that is creating a hurdle? Or are, there, are you finding that actually some of the laws themselves are not inclusive enough or reflecting enough of the challenges? Or is it a very limited understanding of what crimes could happen, for example, or how a victim should be or how you should have acted or that kind of stuff? Okay, so it, it must be said that the court processes themselves are a significant barrier, particularly if you think about um, even just the formal system of of, of dress um, and the way the situation is that, I mean, for instance, put yourself in the shoes of someone with an intellectual disability who's gone through a traumatic experience. And they come to court and have to undergo cross-examination. The difficulty of understanding that this person did me wrong, but now they are allowed to question me, to sh- nearly shout at me. And how is it? How 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 is this justice, right? In that moment of cross-examination, if you if you think about it, for any person, but especially someone who may have difficulties understanding that this is how court processes work, right? So you see there the importance of. Um, certain accommodations such as pre-trial, just going with the person to court before they have to come and testify so they understand that this is just how things happen within this particular, um, in this particular situation. So the court processes themselves are a significant challenge. But having said that, the laws that we have, and I think this is true across the continent, some of them are very supportive in terms of access to justice. But in the same country, there'll be laws that are not so supportive in terms of access to justice for people with disabilities. So if I take the example of Kenya again, we've ratified the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, we have a constitutional provision, Article 48, on the right of access to justice. So, And we have a Sexual Offences Act that has a really expansive protection for people with, um, for who are called vulnerable witnesses, basically, including witness protection boxes, use of intermediaries in testifying, the possibility to ask for frequent breaks, Um, the possibility not to come face-to-face with the perpetrator. You know, we have also sexual offences rules of court that, you know, provide also for the use of um, ICT, video link evidence. There are some pretty amazing provisions in law. At the same time, there are challenges in the extent to which these are implemented. So there's a there's a challenge there where even where the laws are there and are quite progressive, sometimes in terms of implementation, certain things don't uh, go so well. Um, there's a report to this, uh, to this um, effect by Kenya Association for the Intellectually Handicapped, where they found that witness protection boxes in some courts in rural Kenya are so heavy and far placed from the magistrate that she actually wouldn't be able to hear a victim and so you know it's details like that that really make a difference so there's there's those elements but then there's also laws that are pretty problematic we have for example the criminal procedure code 
and mm-hmm. um, this is a, especially in relation to persons with disabilities who are accused of crimes, right? Yeah. Often yeah. when we talk about people with disabilities, we talk about them as victims of crime. But then the flip side, when they are accused persons, under, artic- under sections 162 to 167 of our criminal procedure code, basically the provisions deal with three situations. The situation in which someone is um, claiming the defense of insanity, and that's the language of the law. There's the um, situation where someone who, even though quote-unquote sane at the time of the crime, is in the language of the law again, of unsound mind at the time of trial, right? So the person is having difficulties basically at the time of trial, but they're not claiming the the defense of of insanity. And then there's the third situation under section 167, which addresses where someone is incapable of understanding proceedings. And I think this is making reference to people with intellectual disabilities, because it states the person, though not insane, cannot be made to understand the proceedings. And and, and basically, the effect of all this, uh, the long and short of it, is that people end up incarcerated at the pleasure of the president, which is indefinite indefinite um, detention. In theory, the file is supposed to come up every three years. In practice, um, and, and, you know, and of course I should break it down for each situation because each category is different, right? But just if I may make a general statement is that the result usually is long-term indefinite detention as a result both of the bureaucracy and of that mix-up between judicial powers and executive powers, right? So the, the president is getting, you know, powers in, in a realm that is judicial in nature. But we have cases that challenge this and have rendered it unconstitutional in the Kenyan context. So you're raising a very good point, I think, in terms of access to justice is typically viewed from a victim perspective. Mm. And what you're saying here about some of the defenses, could you explain a little bit in terms of, for example, you were talking about intellectual disabilities. Why are these defenses problematic? And I mean, some people would say, well, isn't it helpful that someone could argue insanity or unsound mind at the time or incapable of understanding? Why is it actually problematic? So it's problematic on a number of levels, right? I'll begin from the presumptions that underlie these laws, right? And partly if I take 167, the presumption is, which is where someone, though not insane, cannot be made to understand the proceedings. The presumption is that someone cannot be made to understand the proceedings. The, the presumption is not, as it should be, that someone with the right supports and accommodations can be able to understand proceedings. So we've made the exception the rule, okay. right, in this, in this situation. So that then you're not asking yourself, do we need, does this person need to communicate through pictures? Do they need to use letters? Do they need, what else? Augmentative and alternative communication, other modes and formats of communicating. What else does this person need in order to put up their defense? Right? We are not asking that question. So that's problematic at that level. If you think about the situation where someone is, quote unquote, in, of unsound mind at the time of trial, um, so then the, 
the question is one of what support the person is, is, is receiving in terms of dealing with the mental health condition. The, the general comment on um, equal recognition before the law is very clear that involuntary treatment is unacceptable under the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So, you know, but is the person having any options in terms of medical, you know, options? And do any options exist within the system in which this person is being tried? Is it only institutionalization in a psychiatric facility? Are there possibilities of a, a psychotherapist, peer support groups and access to peer support? Um, all those other alternatives, basically, to the medical model of mental health care. Are these available for the general population, never mind for someone accused of a crime? So those are some of the issues that arise in, in that regard. And then with the defense of insanity, I mean, it's problematic also from a legal capacity perspective because it's based on the presumption that, um, you know, I mean, if you take the basic tenet of law, the idea that if you have rights, you also, like certain duties also arise, I think the defense raises a presumption that people with disabilities will not take responsibility for their actions, right? So then it can make the society quite hostile. The society might ask, why is it that when it comes to enjoying rights, you have full legal capacity, but when it comes to the flip side of rights, now taking responsibility for actions, then you are making an exception? Right? Should it rather be that the person, should we rather not be talking about the elements of a crime so that if mens rea is, is lacking, shouldn't we approach it from that perspective, that the intention to form the, the capacity, to f the forming of the criminal intent is missing. So even if the act, actus reus is there, the mens rea element is lacking and therefore, I think there are ways to craft this issue that won't um, amplify discrimination on the basis of disability, right? So if it's that, I think there's also just the possibility for someone truly being found guilty, but serving the sentence in a way that has full reasonable accommodation. So a prison setup where the person is not re-victimized, re-traumatized, re all those things, um, so that they serve the, the sentence on an equal basis with others with supports and accommodations in that setting and with the support that they may need for the mental health issues that they may be experiencing. So I think those are some of the thoughts I have about that. No, I mean, you, you raise very good um, and, to be honest, thought-provoking reasons behind, and I think you... From a society point of view, I think you encapsulate it very well when you talk about it's not just rights. You've got duties and we're not trying to excuse certain people from things. We're actually trying to accommodate, make sure things are fully understood. Also to make sure the correct type of sentence is actually imposed. And I think that that's something that is often forgotten, I think, in a lot of the debates that happen. Just as a final point, when it comes to like a legal capacity, persons with disabilities, we're not saying they don't have legal capacity, but are they being excluded? 
from having legal capacity because of a lack of access to justice? Or is it not the case? Is this not something we even need to worry about? Mm. Okay, so... I think the linkage there comes becomes very clear in the light of some of the laws that we have in terms of evidence, right? So, for example, under the Evidence Act of Kenya, it, you know, it has a provision to the extent that all people are competent to testify except um, if they are not able to do so for reasons of infirmity of mind, some provision to, to that effect, right? And the impact is that the person is basically not seen as being capable of exercising their rights, right? As, as being capable of being a person who can take a, an action, which is testifying, which is given accorded legal recognition, right? So that their testimony is not recognized basically in law and therefore that denial impacts then their access to justice right if they are not taken as someone who is a full human being who's a holder of rights and an actor under the law if you deny that element of being an actor under the law you then stop seeing the full person you render them incompetent and therefore you affect their right to access justice so that's one element. And then I think in civil proceedings as well is the question of being able to instruct an attorney. There's um, certainly a case in the Kenyan context where the court ruled that, that the person did not have capacity to instruct an attorney because they were in a mental health facility at the point where when they give instructions. And so then it, it just means that not being seen as someone who can take a decision to enter into a contract with a lawyer, which is a denial of legal capacity, is impacting on the person being able to access justice. So there's that element as well. And of course, there's the element of people under guardianship and the extent to which if you're under guardianship, you can be able to rise up against rights violations. I know that in the Kenyan context at least, not that many people are under formal guardianship because guardianship tends to be quite informal. If you look at the concluding observations of the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities to Kenya on Article 12, it identifies that there are informal substituted decision-making mechanisms that, that happen. But whether formal or informal, the impact is that the person is not able to access the procedures and the systems that are, you know, lead to their being able to enjoy their right to access um, to justice. Well, thank you very much. You have given us a very good overview of some of the challenges of accessing justice and how it starts from the initial incident of even trying to report a crime. So yeah, no, thank you very much. And for your explanations of the Kenyan situation, which really helps contextualize and gives a very good understanding of how things are going there. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Dominique Maestros, in conversation with Elizabeth Comundia. Join us next time as we explore further human rights issues.